hello everyone with the emphasis on one uh Good to have you back with us, dear listener, as we are in the studio. With me in the studio is the one and only Sian Fernandez-Wong. Welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Ian. No, not at all. Uh, it's a pleasure. We've been, uh, I know Emma, our executive editor, has been interviewing you. We've been covering you a bit. We thought, hang on, let's just get face-to-face, voice-to-voice. So let's do the intro. Tell everyone... Uh, who you are, and then a bit about Cocoon. Certainly. I'm Sian Fernandez-Wong. I am the CEO and co-founder of Cocoon. I have been in um, e-commerce and retail for the past nearly 20 years now. And three years ago, we launched Cocoon, which is a luxury subscription service, and we focus exclusively on luxury handbags. (laughs) And so... The best part of... um, The best part of luxury, (laughs) some would say. (laughs) And with that, um, our our model is is different to a lot of the rental options out there in that we're a membership service and we focus on um, monthly subscriptions. And so you pay for your subscription and in exchange you can then access our collection of handbags. Right, there's so many words in there to pick up. Or we have luxury, we have handbags, there's a sustainability, membership, subscription. So uh, in terms of strategic bingo, we've ticked off all of them. <laughs> so we might as well just go back and dive into them. But before we go much further, let, let's just focus for a second on the handbag. Now, I've got a genetic problem, which is I am obsessed with man bags and jackets so i totally understand this sort of acquisition syndrome can't get enough of them handbags however are a world of their own so tell us about these just aren't any old handbags are they what what, what are the handbags that you trade in so firstly jackets handbags really two fantastic categories but (laughs) specifically for us it's luxury and designer handbags and so from the likes of Gucci and Bottega and we have vintage Chanel on there and we have, you know, we really try and keep our edit to the luxury side of the market as opposed to the affordable um, or contemporary side of the market. And so our focus really is on those higher price points. So if you're in the £1,000 plus retail for a handbag, we have bags at retail up to over three and a half thousand. So that is really our sweet spot. And there's a reason behind going after that. Um, <laughs> you, you can see the look on my face. So yeah, please, <laughs> please tell us. <laughs> so luxury handbags themselves, as we know, price points have been increasing significantly over the past, you know, especially during the pandemic, it was quite discussed at the price of luxury handbags. So was that because of supply chain or just because people were thinking, I'm not commuting, I'll dedicate my first class train ticket to a new handbag? What was driving that? I think, look, I think there's a couple of different things. I think in price points, the, I can't speak for any of the luxury brands, I'm on the receiving end of a lot of those price increases myself. But there is a... Firstly, a psychology behind um, price points. Mm. And so in terms of desirability and luxury and um, exclusivity. And then secondly, you have how do you differentiate yourself when everything is increasing so much? 
And so... <laughs> increase even more. <laughs> increase even more. And so for us, the focus is less on price point, but more on quality and desirability. And so we have purposely focused on brands that we know will last. Um, we Even within that subset, we focus on... We have a very strict set of rules around what types of bags we purchase, what we don't, mm -hmm. and what we don't include in our collection, what fabrics we avoid, et cetera, et cetera. Because when we think about what we are trying to achieve, we're thinking about how do we have longevity? How do we have products that will last and stand the test of time? And so with that, in addition, we have this idea of what is the ultimate dream handbag wardrobe. And that includes vintage. And you just have to look at vintage bags to see what looks fantastic mm -hmm. after 5, 10, 20, 40 years to know which brands are really focusing on their production and their craftsmanship. And so for us, that's sort of the focus and why why we go for those price points. The price points are not really down to us. Um but, but the selection within that, yes. of course, is. Now, um, the accountant in me is just trying to run some numbers as you talk mm -hmm. because you're going to have things like a capital model, how many do you buy, how many of each, the rental return, the lifetime value, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, all great, all great words. Uh, thank you. So <laughs> I'm just thinking if uh, someone came to me and said, oh, Ian, I want to raise money to go out and buy dozens, hundreds, thousands of handbags. I'd be thinking about these. So, so tell me about the stock position then, because there are two dimensions. The ones you own yourself, mm -hmm. and uh, so which I think you buy new, is that correct? So we, we own all of our stock ourselves. And so that is a key differentiator between us and everyone mm -hmm. else in the market. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But those, that exact train of thought is was the starting point for the business in a lot of ways because how do you start to think about from a stock position how do you look at uh, are handbags a depreciating asset or are they an appreciating or, or are they <laughs> right and how do you look at that over time and so ultimately well, there's a lot of data modeling that goes into it there's a lot of understanding around depreciation and which bags and which mm. brands depreciate at what rate or not. And how then to think about those handbags as an asset class in and of themselves. And how do you balance appreciation, depreciation against time and um, the income you can earn on that asset during the time before you have to exit it. Mm. So that is essentially, so if you're thinking about it, so we buy... Our, um, our handbags in through a variety of ways. We have wholesale agreements. We have um, B2B pre-owned relationships. And then there is a small portion we do buy new. Um, and that is mostly just because they're ultra desirable and you cannot get them any other way. Mm. And so, and we also understand what the resale value of that bag is, is. if we do buy it in new because there are brands that will then go on to, because of the exclusive nature, will go on to appreciate in value in the second-hand market. Mm. So that's really how we look at 
all of those aspects of our stock. So when you think about, you know, to your point, when you're fundraising and you're going out and you're saying, well, I have all this, I need money because I need to buy stock. And then <laughs> yes. a lot of people look at you like, okay, how does this work? Yeah. Right? Because, but once you explain the point around treating handbags as an asset stock class mm. and the fact that, especially because of we're so thoughtful about the products that we buy and we've learned a lot over time and we've inputted that information back into our model. So it's gotten smarter. We were able to say, we think that this is how these items, this is what the value will be over time and we right. will come out. And so then you start to, A, have a business where you're earning money, but you also have an asset class that is going to earn you money should you decide but to. the third part of that is you also become an arbiter of that value. So, you know, if you compare this yeah. with maybe New York property, then if you say, oh, my new penthouse block is worth X million, which you then securitize, you're sort of being a market maker, a value maker, as well as a trader off that. So it's quite an interesting position. There'll come a point yeah. when you have enough stock to be the market price setter. Yeah, and, and that's A, the aim, but also... There's this knowledge and expertise that we hope to bring in. And when I when I talk to people and I start to really dive into a the idea around what we what we buy and why we buy. So it's mm. understanding what is a trend, um, what trend are gonna continue, but also what we've seen is what doesn't doesn't hold its value. And so if we're not buying into it, ultimately is it that relevant for the audience today? Because either through our expert knowledge or through what we've seen mm. in the past three years, we get a really good sense of what is happening in the market. And so for us, we have a really good understanding of how prices change over time, what value changes over time, what people are wanting here and now. Mm. And we most businesses, most retail business, and this is one of the things that I really geek out over because the data side of this is so cool. But most businesses, you know, and coming from a marketing background, you're looking at what's your lifetime value? How many um, customer touch points do you have? What does an active customer look like to you? If you're in a luxury business, you might be saying, oh, my, um, my active customer is somebody who's shopped with me once in 12 months or 18 months. Any customer or any member that has been with us is interacting with us at least once a month. Mm. So they're ordering something new on average between every 25 and 28 days. They are adding items to their wish list all the time. So if somebody's with us as a member for 14 months, during that time frame, we have 14 months worth mm. of highly detailed data points. So yeah. when you start thinking about what does that even look like on a customer basis level, the lifetime value, yes, really interesting. Yeah. But when you think about how many, you know, when you start to pull that data out and you think, we know how old they are and we know where they live and we know what they like and what they're ordering, 
and what they're looking at alongside. And so you build up these really complex detailed patterns around what people are doing and what they want to do. And that, that level of data is why membership and subscriptions are so valuable. Of course. But I've been a bit naughty here. I've allowed us to dive straight into uh, the detail because I can tell we both like it. But can I just pull us yeah. back out a second and go back to the customer proposition? So I wake up in the morning, uh, either a friend tells me about it or I'm desperately trying to find the must-have bag come across your site and think, oh, I could just have it this month. Yep. The proposition is, uh, just correct me when I get this wrong, I become a member, I can then rent one bag at a time for up to a maximum of three months. Yep. Or as little as one month. So we have two types of membership. Mm-hmm. And either a full-time membership, which is you pay monthly and then you can... And what sort of money are we talking about here? Let's so, be... Let's be you know, focus and brass tax. £79 a month for our premium membership or £99 a month for our deluxe membership. Premium membership gets you access to bags up to 1500 And right. deluxe membership... And that's pounds, not... That's pounds. ...cubic centimetres of capacity. <laughs> <laughs> up to £1,500 yeah. in value. So ultimately, you're paying £79 a month. And in a year, if you're changing every year, you can, you know, you're looking at 25 you know, £1,000 worth of handbags, roughly, right? So... Um, it's a very reasonable, I, if I, look, reasonable cost to pretend ownership. Yeah, very reasonable. And then our deluxe membership is um, £99 a month, and those price points are between 1500 and £3,500. So wow. you can have... A very luxurious Bottega Veneta Arco tote that is, you know, beautiful and beautifully made and feels luxurious for £99 a month. Well, I'm going to put pictures of some of these bags after we've recorded. (laughs) Send me the best bags. I'll put the pictures in the programme notes. But you said Bottega Veneta, so I'm sold. Now, two things immediately come to mind, uh, good and bad. One is the my little puppy that I'm carrying around town has just been sick in the bag. What do I do? Um, slash being <laughs> stolen, slash my iPhone's exploded, whatever. So the, the damage side. And then the other side is, do you know how important I am? I'm a deluxe member. I want that bag now. Rip it off someone else's shoulders. So how do you manage that? Damage <laughs> and excess demand for the now, now, now generation. Two things we deal with. Um, we're very fortunate most of our members don't put their pets in our bags. Do you know, honestly, the worst and thing that does happen most frequently is ballpoint pens. They are... They are literally Satan's pointers. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Be, be eco-friendly, buy a pencil, please. But also, <laughs> we must all know that person in your life slash office that walks up to your brand new laptop and points with a ballpoint pen onto your screen. <laughs> Literally, there should be special employment regulations to deal with them. I can see Ed in the sand room nodding. They're evil. Evil. Yeah. The <laughs> yeah. But ballpoint ink, and honestly, yeah. that is, it's really hard to get out of a bag. It's really hard to, whether that is ink, whether that's a leather interior or a fabric interior. So yeah. that happens more frequently. We try and be as fair as possible. But Always. do you insure them or 
I, as a member, am self-insured or I can take out insurance? So, How does that work? So uh, we do have minimal insurance on in our bags. However, it doesn't cover I, my ballpoint pen exploded in your bag. I'm so sorry. So we have a few different things. One, um, members are responsible for returning their bags in the quality that they got oh, sent out. God, stress. And you, it's more infrequent than you, mm. you know, than you think. Most people are thoughtful, and so, um, and so, we try and get as many of the marks in. Um, and mistakes mm. out of bags. And, and we're pretty good at that. We either do it in-house or if it's really severe, we'll send it out to a third party. And if we can get away with a deep cleaning, yeah, we will. If there are instances where it's gone beyond that and, you know, there is willful damage, people do. Um, there are, unfortunately, a small, small oh. subset of people who aren't respectful but where there is damage let's say it's accidental uh and you can't return it to pristine does the next person get the chance to rent a b grade or a c grade and pretend it's just the pattern of their own busy life that they're carrying around with them or is that bag then a write-off um it's not necessarily a write-off because to your point um the resale market is full of uh, items that are um, imperfect yeah. and and people are more than happy to have a bag mm-hmm. with a little bit of pen ink inside. Fine. Yes, a bit um, of character. We, at this point, don't... We have discussed it. People do expect, even thinking about the minimal amount of money that they do pay for the quality mm. of item and the value of item they receive, they do still expect it to be... Christine. And that, that is the customer. And that yeah. is the customer. And so we take a very rational view. Mm-hmm. And so do we think this mark is acceptable? And I have quite high standards. So, you know, um, we are on the side of caution there. Um, and so if we think yes, then it will and can go out with a small imperfection. Mm-hmm. If we think no, then it will be sold on as part right. of resale. Okay, and then let's jump then to this demanding consumer who wants perfect things for the lowest price. Let's say, you know, I'm off the ambassador's ball. I have to have this one thing. I've had my eye on it. I've wishlisted it. I've mailed you. I've rung you. But the number you have are already out. Yeah. Are people asking for queue jumping rights, you know, extra platinum, diamond, triple gold star access. There must be a demand for let me raid your warehouse level. Yeah, so there there is. And generally, we try and be as, um, so we do wishlist things. We do offer early access to members who've been with us for a long time. And more of those are on loyalty basis as opposed to a paid for basis. Mm. We are bringing out some interesting new membership options to deal with some right. of those points. <laughs> because, yes, there always are going to be those members who want things. Um, the concierge instantly. generation. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and But also, we are in the business of service, right? Mm. We are 
here to provide a fantastic membership experience. So how can we, you know, we sit around and we brainstorm, how can we go out of our way even more? What does good look like for us? So how can we improve on that point? And so I call it my all my years at the Netawate Group and that was drilled into us. It's still so fundamentally important to us as a business that the customer and our member what are their needs and how can we yes. think of that? How can we think of ways to solve for their needs before they've even told us that's what they want? Yeah. So we have absolutely sourced bags in addition to what we have in our collection for people when they've gone, oh, you know, I really wanted said bag and you don't have any more. There's a limit to that because often we've been able to source sold out silver Fendi baguette bags that you can't get anywhere else. Mm. And we have two, right? And so there just aren't any more to get. And so how do you how do you balance that is one of the challenges that yes. we have because we have depth in certain styles, but it's more the continuity pieces and some ex, you know, particular pieces you just are not able to have twenty of. Yes. Right? You will have one. But also that's what makes them yeah. So attractive. But again, why then stick with a month? Because people who have social lives, uh, unlike me, they might be busy several times a week going out to posh things. But if you're looking for a one-off, then you literally need three days. The day before to have your Instagram, the night more Instagram, the day after for the day after shots, then give so, it back. So um, interestingly, so our members have the option to have a second bag because, you know, what we were really going for was less around this super occasion focused and more around how do you integrate into your everyday life right, because okay. of also the price point. And so what we realized was, and through a lot of member feedback was, I love my bag. I am using this bag whether I'm going out for drinks or I'm, you know, weekend bag, the Prada, Hobo, Safiano leather is amazing for that. But I do have a wedding or I do have a this. And so you are able to order an extra bag right. a week at a time. Okay. And for us, we find the week rather than three days gives that person the right amount of time to yes. use it. You know, try it on with their wardrobe planet. But also you would take all the stuff out of your other bag, yeah. then do a repack so you know where everything is. So that must take at least two days. <laughs> <laughs> now, well, as you're talking, the obsessive bits of me are thinking, I wouldn't be able to stop myself extending to other categories. So watches are on fire at the moment, similar in that they have asset value, scarcity, you can't get a steel Rolex sports watch for love money or a mm. kidney, you know, plus a really massive fan base, lots of social media, peer-to-peer -peer chat. So it seems that watches be a good one. How do you stop, well, two questions, how do you stop yourself, you know, bloating, yeah. And then maybe, stupid question here, we're about to launch watches. Da -da. So <laughs> what's the plan outside or why stick to just handbags? I get the logic, the asset value. I love that. Yep. Are there other categories where you're thinking? So 
Firstly, one of the reasons we are successful in handbags is because we've just stocked it. And so most of other people in the market who are doing rental in a broad yeah. sense um, have been less successful in handbags because they are so expensive, they're very specific in how you have to look after them, et cetera, et cetera. So that's why we've stuck with handbags and we've been so mm. focused on that as a category because we wanted to be really So I have good. visions of air-conditioned, climate-controlled humidor <laughs> racks with people with feather dusters. So basically yeah. so, they have to be kept. Yeah, so I I get quite obsessive about things and, 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 yes. and honestly... <laughs> Uh, people complain about how cold it is right. <laughs> all the time. Because it's good for the bags. Good for the bags. <laughs> um, but I have a wish list of tech that I want to buy that is, you know, sort of um, in terms of all of the new cool things that we want to have within. Um, and we want to, we do most of, there are a lot of people who use 3PLs, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. We don't, we own all of our processes ourselves. And we there's a reason for that, um, we've spent a lot of time weighing up and debating which is better. Watches, interesting category. We've looked into it. It yeah. was actually one of the first thoughts my co-founder had when he first started sort of ideating. He was like, watches. Yeah. The trouble with watches, it's the upkeep is even more expensive than handbags. And yes. so you're looking at a service on a Rolex, yeah. um, which is between six and eight hundred pounds. Spare parts, really expensive. And so when you start to think about what that looks like. Yes, you're, you're putting me off already. It was a nice idea, temporarily. So that's why, <laughs> that is why luxury watches becomes a difficult category. Mm. Clothing for me, I have mixed views on whether rental clothing is a good idea or not. Um, I think it's fine if you've got a plastic surgeon who can make you fit clothes or you're one of these people whose body doesn't change shape throughout your life whereas uh, if you're in the 98 percent of everybody else then you know the combinatorial complexity of size etc it, it to me it just seems that like that's what shops were for in the first place there's a lot of that certainly and, and the reason part of the reason for handbags was around the universal nature you know you can be a woman whose body changes size over her sort of, you know, between her 20s and her 40s or 60s or whatever, mm -hmm. and it doesn't really matter. Because you a could bag be, is a bag. Yeah. A bag is a bag. You could be whatever gender you want, a bag is a bag. Versus clothing, A, you have wear and tear that's at a different sort of level. Yes. There is, you know, if you're not sample size, and we've worked in retail for a long yes, enough to yes. know, but for, for our listener, we are both perfect sample size. May I just say, <laughs> they close their eyes and imagine, that's us. <laughs> and so and so for that, right, for me, there are people that are doing that. Good luck to them. Great. Mm. You know, there could be other categories in the future that we expand into. But for the moment, the big focus is handbags. Right. So we have... Definitely picked at that down to the bones, but we haven't looked at what got you here. So yeah. I mentioned at the top of the podcast, blah, 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 your illustrious uh, retail career, and then we just skipped over it. So <laughs> let's let's fill in that gap now. Um, you have done some great roles. So just paint us a picture of how you got yeah. to here, and then 
we'll just look for that aha moment. Yes. We thought, you know, global tier one companies, yes. bye-bye them, I'm going handbag. So first of all, <laughs> just, just paint the picture up to before sure. you set up. So I'm originally South African and we were talking about how I moved, I've been in London for 22 years. So um, my career in e-commerce retail started in 2005 when I joined Ted Baker as mm-hmm. an e-commerce manager. And so since then, and then 2009, I joined the Netaporte Group, where I spent nearly seven years as um, A, launched the Outnet, but B, was head of global marketing. And so that was in the beginning, you know, we grew as a business at a ferocious rate. And it started off, I think, I was the first person in the marketing team and employee number three. But, you know, by the time I left, I think 32 people across yes. multiple continents. <laughs> right. Again, still a small team by the business standards. And so... A difficult company to leave, though, because of very the pace diff- of change and Do you know, growth. Netaporte at that time was an incredible place to work. And especially... So I left the same year the um, UKES... Um, Yeah, merger thing happened. But I started in 2009 prior to the outnet launching. So it was just one business. And over the next, I would say, four, especially four or five years, it was an incredible place. And we learned so much as a business, went on to launch Mr. Porter. Mm -hmm. We went from being a startup or becoming a scale-up to being a three business organization with yeah. which, which was setting the standards for others exactly setting the gold standard and i remember having a conversation with someone in 2017 and he'd come from he'd been in asia and he was coming to run a business that i was involved in and he was talking about how oh you know Netaporte, who cares, right? And I was taken aback because I was like, you know, this is a business that really set the way luxury e-commerce operated. And so a very hard business to to leave. And But, you know, we all need to leave at some point. And I was offered two roles in Paris, but that didn't work out. So I landed up joining Kate Spade Mm -hmm. as um, Senior Director of E-Commerce International Markets Digital Blah, blah. And that was really interesting, being in the UK for an American brand. Yes. Um, or rest of world, as they call it. Yeah, rest <laughs> of world. And so what that really showed me was um, a few things, because one of the fantastic things about the Netaporte Group is was being in London and running a global team and a global mm. strategy from the UK. And I was on the other side in that to me, I found it wasn't a play, uh, wasn't a position I enjoyed being in. Right, I didn't enjoy mm-hmm. being not in the home market, and I found myself on a plane to New York quite often. And so, and again, it's I think it's the difference between a global service experience brand, the various porters. Uh, so there, you are known for what you do. Mm. Not for the prod or the sub-brand. But when, when you're Kate Spade, there is only one Kate Spade. Whoever Kate is, you know, it's one spade globally. 
Uh, and there's that different view, I think, of the top-down global brand, which kind of sits a bit odd if you've been customer-focused and service-focused for a while. Yeah, and, and I think to Kate Spade's credit, um, they do service fantastically well, especially in the US market, mm. where they're very well known for their overall service. But that's also to your point, because in my previous role when I was at the Netaporte Group, it was setting the strategy, setting the brand, defining what yeah. that brand meant, having conversations. I remember quite early on, everybody had an opinion who our customer was. And so eventually I was like, okay, we can't have this anymore. We are going to make sure that we all know who our customer is and what they look like and yeah. developed customer personas. So we all knew and were speaking about that same end goal. But at Kate, you weren't... That was already set. Yeah. And so that was a really interesting experience. Fantastic group of people. But I was also there at the time of the um, tapestry acquisition. I was thinking you're, you're basically like an acquisition <laughs> magnet, aren't you? So uh, once, yeah. once um, so after Kate, you went to Best Paris. Year. Yes. Yeah. Well, interestingly, I didn't actually, I didn't actually <laughs> go to Paris. Oh, no. So I stayed in London and worked in Paris. Which is oh my god, that's so pre-Brexit and so <laughs> <I know. laughs> Um and and actually on a personal level, completely unsustainable, which is ironic given the brand. But um, so funny was that the one of the co-founders and I caught up, and she told me she was leaving and heading to Hong Kong, and that her position would be vacant. And so it took, and that was after I'd spoken to them in 2015 and they'd said look we wanted to work with you and that didn't work out so yeah. I was already familiar with the brand and the team and so I'd I came on board as vice president of EMEA in September 2017 and then in uh, December 2017 I took on the role of CMO in addition to that and so I was in Paris every week. I think one year I calculated I spent, I'd left the country 40 times for work. No. And so... So um, <laughs> I, I'm balancing the exhaustion of that with yeah. the first bit, which was I was in Paris every week. So that, that's ideal. So that sounds like um, travel notwithstanding, the perfect job. So what made you then think, you know what, I've had enough of being this high-flying, you know, air-mile-eating uh, exec. The call of handbags. <laughs> just, just talk me through why, so, why the startup. So I think a couple of things. And, and as much as I loved being in Paris, um, as anybody who does a lot of corporate travel will tell you, it's nowhere near as fun or as glamorous as anybody makes out to be. Not after the 30th time. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and secondly, on a personal life perspective, I felt that I needed to have my work in the, not that I, you know, I've always traveled for business. And so that's not an issue. It was just more that the, my main point of business needed to be where my life was. Mm. And so my husband made it clear he didn't want to move to Paris. Again, he was like, I thought we had this conversation. So that cleared that up. And so therefore, 
It's nice he thinks he gets a vote. I think that's very <laughs> open-minded of you. <laughs> and so it just became a very sort of, okay, well, Paris is no longer going to work because yeah. I need to be in London. I have a family too. And as anybody with kids, when you're traveling a lot, it becomes really, really tricky. Mm. So there I was going, well, now what? Right, I've done this for two years. It's been amazing, but really hard work especially because of the travel. Take the travel out of it and it would have been very, very different in terms mm. of the energy level. And then I was sitting around throwing ideas about um, and um, I looked into rental a bit before that and thought, wouldn't that be good? I had another idea about a tech business. I may have still started one day. And then um, the other idea I had was around a sustainability agency. So I was like, what am I going to do? Right. Because <laughs> I think put those together? The, the thing that I realized was the driving factor around what I'd been doing in my career was building businesses, which I love doing. The convergence of fashion tech, really important. But also niche businesses that have gone on to become big businesses mm -hmm. has actually been a recurring theme. And so what I wanted to think about was where could I take all of those interests and passions and skills and what else could I do with that? And so thinking through all of those things and thinking through rental, um, and then I met my co-founder, Matt, who I was introduced to him by a few different people in the industry. He went, oh, there's this guy and he has this idea and he, you know, really benefit from someone like you. And so we went for ramen, you know, <laughs> as you do, as you do, <laughs> um, and headed off. And you know, there that was three and a half years ago. Wow! And so the first thing that after he was like, "Oh, I'm," you know, I think handbags, and I was like, "Yeah, <laughs> actually." But it is one of those things we think. Oh, my first response was. There's a platform business that was yep. waiting to grow. But as you've said, that, that focus is uh, you know, a really important part yeah. of it. Exactly. And 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 so I went home and I essentially built the business case for it. And I sat and I built the PL and I sort of forecast the business up for the next three years. And I was like, what could this actually look like? Mm. And, and so has it turned out like your PL? Just just checking, because <laughs> I have this yeah. conversation with our finance director all the time. And oddly enough, when you look back, it never looks like the projections. I think, well, I did it at a time before COVID, right? So, <laughs> I have a good point. <laughs> so nobody was thinking that we, we were going to go headfirst into a pandemic. And, you know, certainly in the, those first three months, everybody was calling each other around. All the sort of CEOs from all the rental business were all calling each other going, so how's things for you? Yeah. Are, are people just ordering for their house and then wearing them with their pajamas on Zoom calls? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so, um, and so for me, the other thing was the driving forces. I have built businesses within businesses, and I've done that successfully. And I've been very fortunate to have that support system, mm. which we don't have at Cocoon. Because we're an independent startup. Yes, we've had um, investment from Caring, but that is 
we're still an not a small thing. Not a not a small <laughs> thing, but we're still an independent startup without any of that support. And so it felt very much like a itch I needed to scratch, having mm. been in the industry. And you know, I joined Vestiaire when they were, I think, seven years old. So also again, seven or eight years old. So you know, at a time in their life cycle where they'd grown up quite mm. a lot, and so. Um, I felt like it was something I needed to prove to myself. But now, now you've gone this far, yeah. so say you're halfway into the seven-year itch of scratching <laughs> it, do you think that at the end of the seven years, you think, I love that, I'm going to start from scratch again and go, or do you think, now I've caught up with where I've normally joined, yeah. and I think I do quite like these bigger businesses. So when you look at the trajectory, I know you're halfway through scratching, mm. but is the trajectory, I'm, I like growth, or is it a like startup? I think, look, I think startups are not for everybody. And there's a reason for that because they are really hard. Mm. And they are very rewarding because you learn at a level you wouldn't anywhere else. Yeah. Um, but I think it's kind of like having children. If you knew how hard it was, you wouldn't do it. So Yeah, and when people tell you how hard it is, you don't believe them. <laughs> exactly. And so it's kind of... So also... A joyous, fulfilling, I must say, because I make my children listen to this. Love them <laughs> Look, I think one of the great things about doing a startup when you're slightly older and you're in your 40s versus in your 20s is you have some experience which can help you get to where you need mm. to be faster. I think part of the benefit of doing it in your 20s rather than your 40s is you have a fearlessness, yes. right? You don't know really how hard things are or how um, bad things can really get. So there's pros and cons to both. I think I could do another startup again, but I would do it differently, right? right? Because, you know, you learn things along the way. But I think what I've learned about myself and my career, I prefer if I am going to do a really large matrixed complex organization you really need to be part i need to be part of that central conversation yes. otherwise um it's just who i am as a person and there are plenty of people who are more than happy to be the regional director of whatever yeah because they're operational yeah roles, different yeah. mindset versus yeah. me i really love being in the strategy and building that up, and and that's my happy place. Mm. I really like businesses where you can drive initiatives forward fast, and right. that is why I really like scale ups as opposed to those larger businesses. I think when I joined Kate Spade, and they told me that the roadmap was eighteen months long, and therefore that was when my project could start. I kind of went, "What? <laughs> How does it like what?" Yeah, it's a big big business. Yeah, yeah. and so to answer that question, I'm really happy we are at this point. I think I'd wanted to have gotten here faster, right? But that I think... But that's the impatience. <laughs> that's the impatience. Yeah. Um, we have so many exciting points on our roadmap, and whether mm. you're talking about tech development or you're talking about um, business growth, international growth, etc. They're all things that we're looking to continue to build out. Um, but in addition, um, there are other businesses that are out there, you know. And so <laughs> would I, I don't know, I might 
think about how I could do them. So I, I feel concurrent. we're at that cliffhanger <laughs> moment where uh, the storyteller means we should uh, just pause it now. So, Sian, that was amazing. Thank you so much for that. We are, of course, tracking the business. So yep. you feature in uh, the recent sustainability report and you know, there are many aspects that we haven't even touched upon today around sustainability. So I know Emma's done an interview with you, and I'll put a link to that actually in the programme notes. Uh, but we have covered so much ground. I particularly think we've finished on a nice point around <laughs> this idea of being at the heart of the business yep. uh, and growth with pace. So those are my sort of hmm. motivating takeaways as we yep. head off into the rain. Thank uh, you very much. Sian, absolute pleasure chatting. Thank you, you for too. being with us. Thank you so much, Ian. Lovely. Thank you so much. Is Emily in there? Is she yeah. asleep or no? She's waving. <laughs> Just checking. She can give us marks out of 10 uh, afterwards. Oh, that okay. was interesting. I hadn't, um, uh, I hadn't thought through fully the asset aspect of the of the bags. So when I talk, to, I mean, ultimately we're an operations business, right? Yeah. But also, especially when you think about it, from a funding standpoint, we're in the asset management business. Yes. Right? And therefore, which is very different. So, you know, we're a, we're a service business, we're a membership business, mm. but essentially what we have is, is assets. And so if you look at, for example, so a house, yeah. they're an asset business because they're, they're assets or property. And yes. Asset plus membership. Yeah. Yeah. But um, with you though, um, we could have gone into talking about fractional ownership, NFTs, authenticity. How do I know? You mentioned that bag yeah. that there are two of them. Yeah, I believe you because sadly uh, it's outside my knowledge. But if there are two of them, it's bag one, bag two. Yeah. How do you know they are the bags? What if, for example, I wanted to invest in one of your bags? Yeah. So So you could you could do a fund where as well as my membership for usage, I become yeah. a co investor. Yeah. A bit like a stock portfolio. Exactly. And and that's that's where it starts to get really interesting. You know, when people are talk, have said to us, Oh, are you going to do Hermes bags? I mean, like, we've done one or two. Hermes takes us, us to a different level because mm. the security you need behind renting yes. out an Hermes. Yeah, bag. comes with a personal security guard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and so if somebody absconds with a bag, for example, right, how do we how do we get that back? Yeah, yeah. And how do we get that money back from that person? We have very little theft. Um we do auto digital ID verification, which has helped massively yes. with that. But um but it takes us as into a different yes. range of membership and pricing. And, and there's a market for that, absolutely. This could be Ocean's 14. Uh, but also you start to think <laughs> about what, what is fractional membership. Yeah. And how do you start looking at that? Likewise with NFTs, what does that also look like? Yeah. Um, but everything from RFIDs, also sustainability, so things like yeah. increasingly these manufacturers are talking about their provenance, the sustainability, the craft. Yeah. And a lot of that you want to be able to say, you know, this bag is made with ethical labour, with, you yeah, know, exactly. non-copper, chemical, whatever. But that's also that part does. of why we've gone the luxury route as opposed to the more contemporary. Of course, Because yeah. 
even with and and not all, but when you start talking about Fendi peekaboo bags are made by hand, yeah. right? And they're made by hand in Italy, and um, you're not. And so, yes, there are improvements that those manufacturers can do in terms of their dyes, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a lot of there's a lot around what does um what do we need to be what can we do as part of that? And so, you know, the idea that rather than going out and buying a bag at Arkit yeah. or COS or whatever, you can go and get something that is increasing its life cycle in usage yeah, yeah. is is so much more important. Fascinating. Well, yeah. we'll come back to this, I'm sure. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ian. Pleasure. Really lovely seeing you. You too.